This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guests today are Jim Blandy and Jason Orendorf. They are the authors of the new book, Programming Rust. The early release version of the book is available on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, and the final print and ebook versions of it will be released in October. Jim works on Firefox's web developer tools for Mozilla, and he's been a maintainer of GNU Emacs and GNU Guile, as well as GDB, the GNU debugger. He's also one of the original designers of the Subversion version control system. Jason hacks C++ for Mozilla, where he's the module owner of Firefox's JavaScript engine. We'll talk with Jim and Jason about all things Rust, including differences between Rust and other languages, Rust's learning curve, and what's happening with the language right now. Enjoy the show. We're delighted to be joined by the authors of Programming Rust, Jim Blandy. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jeff. And Jason Orendorf. Hey, Jason. Uh, hello, Jeff. Well, let's start by talking about and asking you about what is Rust for? Like, what kind of project more or less demands that uh, that you should look into Rust? Well, so basically, if if the problem you're trying to solve is, is performance, if your code needs to be fast, uh, or if your code needs to be memory efficient, um, Rust is really the best language out there. Um, there are a lot of other languages that are great for like prototyping, or they've got particular areas of specialty that they're that they're strong at. Um, but when your problem is it's just taking too long, or you want to have a really big data set and you have to keep it all in memory, Rust gives you the control to to pull something like that off. That's right. So we're we're talking about applications. This is Jason talking about some applications like uh, uh, high performance. Um, Games, uh, scientific simulations, if you're writing an operating system, you might want to use Rust, uh, file system drivers, any kind of drivers, that kind of thing. Yeah, Mozilla's big project uh, that we sort of did along with uh, while we were developing Rust is Servo, which is a browser engine, right? Browser engines are just, they absolutely have to be performant because you know, the, the more performant your browser can be, the more room you've left in the computer for the actual web content, right? Um, so, yeah, and Servo, Servo performs, Servo is written, uh, web engine written entirely in Rust, and it's, and it's very performant. You mentioned very early in the book that Rust helps you write systems programs that are free of common errors. Can you talk about a few of these common errors that developers have historically made that Rust eliminates? Well, for example, uh, uh, no pointer dereferences, uh, dangling pointers, double freeze, buffer overruns, and a whole lot of sort of reentrancy problems. Rust actually just eliminates them. And a nice thing is that, um, except for buffer overruns, Rust eliminates them at compile time with compile time checks. It's Rust's type system. It's a modern, flexible, expressive type system that actually catches these errors uh, at compile time. And so... Basically, there's there's zero overhead uh, at runtime spent enforcing these things, and what's really key is that these are the bugs that lead to uh, security flaws in code, right? You know, the the the, the, the kinds of classic uh, things that uh, people exploit in in C and C plus plus code would be, you know, a, a use after free um, or a buffer overrun. Those those bugs are prevented by Rust. One of the things that's, that we've learned over the last you know, 10 years or so is that most software, almost all software is security sensitive, 
right? We used to think that like, okay, we've got a security boundary, right? And this is the software that actually talks to the outside world. We better, we better sort of make that really tough. But then, you know, the rest of our code can be just sort of, you know, we can write it in a, in a relaxed way and not worry about that. Well, it turns out that the way whoever it was broke into the Iranian nuclear fuel refinement system was through a bug in a type parser, a, a true type typeface parser, right? That is, you know, you, you have a, a Word document and it uses a bunch of fonts. And so Word needs to parse those fonts in order to display them on the screen, right? Well, that software had a bug and they slipped a malformed font in there. And that was how they broke into machines. So if font rendering software, a font parsing software is security sensitive, what that means is that all software is security sensitive, right? And so Rust is really aiming at, you know, catching that class of memory management errors that that people have been exploiting, you know, since there were computers to exploit. Um, so that's, I think that's, th those those are the main things. But the nice thing is that since Rust has this nice, uh, expressive, modern type system, you can actually, uh, once you get good at it, you can actually encode all kinds of things about your program, rules that you want your program to follow. You can actually figure out how to phrase them in a way that the type system does the work of checking your program for you. Um, so it goes a lot more, it goes a lot farther than just, you know, security and, you know, the basic, you know, uh, integrity of your program. When you're using it well, the Rust actually is is helping you find all kinds of mistakes, all kinds of programming mistakes in your own code. And Rust is most commonly compared with C++ or cited as an alternative to C or C++, right? Um, what would you say are the biggest differences between those languages and Rust. Jason? Yeah, I think I think the the easy one is the C++ makes it awfully easy to shoot yourself in the foot. And in <laughs> fact it's it's so easy that that even the best C++ programmers using like the modern dialects of the language still make these mistakes and you get what's called in C++ undefined behavior, which means the program goes wrong and 90% of the time uh, it works just fine, um, but then sometime down the road you get a, you get a crash, or you get an exploitable security uh, hole, uh, or you just get funky behavior that's very hard to debug. Well, Rust uh, is a safe language, which means like we the language itself avoids having undefined behavior. Uh, they just this makes it the software engineering characteristics of the language makes it just make it make it much easier to write secure, correct software. That's the big difference from C++. Now, there's an escape valve um, because safety is a restriction, and so it can be kind of restrictive to have uh, to have rules that enforce determined define determined behavior all the time. Um, and occasionally, one of these, like a buffer overrun check in a in a tight loop, can be too slow, and you need to you want to turn that off. So Rust also has this unsafe mode. You can use you can use the unsafe keyword, and then uh, you're you're allowed to use operations that are that are not safe unless you're using them correctly. Right, the features that require some care to to use properly. Uh, but it's much more explicit in Rust compared to C yeah, in C++ basically, in C++ and C, basically everything is unsafe. <laughs> and yeah, if you add integers, you're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what about the differences between Rust and Java or Rust and Python? Well, the, the big one is that uh, Rust doesn't have a garbage collector, right? So there, Rust is offering programmer a lot more control over specifically what memory is in use and, you know, which 
variables take up how much memory and how all that works. Uh, whereas in a language like Python, you really don't worry about it, right? And this can mean that Python can be faster. Like, I mean, what I mean is that Python can be faster to develop. It can be uh, easier for the programmer to, to get going and, uh, and to get stuff done. But that Python doesn't give you that low-level control over exactly what the CPU is doing that's sometimes necessary to write performing code. What sort of language is Rust? Um, it's not object-oriented, not functional. So what is it? Is it kind of multi-paradigm, like something like C-sharp? It is multi-paradigm, right? Like, it, it feels that way to me. Jim, what do you think? Like, it, it's, not, it's not a pure object-oriented language. What do people use those labels for? I think, I think when somebody says, is it an object-oriented language, what they're hoping is like, uh, you know, I'll, I know other object-oriented languages. If it's an object-oriented language, I can go in and I'll just sort of be ready to, to architect things and I'll have a sense of, of how to approach problems already. People who approach Rust with, uh, like, you know, they're, then they're really into like class hierarchies. Rust does not use class hierarchies to organize things. Rust instead uses something called uh, traits which uh, and a trait is, you can think about a trait as sort of a property that a type could have, right? Like, for example, a string is something that you can iterate over, right? It produces the characters of the string. Uh, a hash table is something you can iterate over, and it produces the elements of the hash table. Um, or a network connection is something you can iterate over, and it gives you, you know, bytes or packets. And so all of those types, those three types are all, they all implement the iterator trait in Rust. Um, and so you get the same kind of, you know, flexibility and polymorphism that, that people want from object-oriented languages, but uh, it comes about in a different way. And honestly, I don't think that there is another language which ends up working the way Rust does. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think, I think that people who come in used to object-oriented languages, they actually struggle with it a bit. Um, they have to, yeah. they have to learn new Rust isn't isn't designed around a like a, a programming dogma, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's that's more right. designed around giving you the capability to get the specific, very low-level tasks right and fast. That leads into a question about Rust's learning curve. Uh, how how hard is it to learn? <laughs> Hopefully, lower now that we've written this book. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I, I, seriously, when I started working on this book, um, my or, or or shortly before I started started working on this book, my conclusion was that I was not smart enough to use Rust. Like, I just, <laughs> this this compiler it, it it speaks in complete sentences. Like I don't know what I'm bringing to the table in this relationship. Um, but uh, in time, like so, I first of all I've come to really appreciate how good the compiler's error messages are, and I've come to appreciate what Rust is doing here. Like, it is helping me write a correct program. Uh, and it's doing it by transferring all the pain of all the bugs that I'm putting in forward in time so that instead of hitting them later, and having to debug each one, I, I encounter them before my code will compile. And yeah. there's definitely a learning curve uh, uh, involved with that. It, force, it, it brings the, the pain of having to learn the rules that make pointers safe, for example, uh, it, it takes it from the, the next 10 years of your life and compresses them into, you have to get it done before your program will compile. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, yeah, there's there's something that a lot of people they approach a programming language and they say, well, yeah, look, I'm just get the syntax right, and then I'll run my program, and then it will go wrong, right? And I'll say, oh, okay, here's here's where it went wrong, and then they they just debug, right? They work backwards from you know the symptom, and they say, oh, yeah, here's here's where things went astray, and then they then they fix that, right? And and that's sort of how people become uh, you know accustomed with with the language, really, is that they they discover things by uh, running your programs and, and, and debugging them. And the thing about Rust is that you you can't do that, right? Your program, by the time it runs, it is free of memory errors. You are not going to spend time debugging segmentation faults. You're not going to spend time uh, debugging dangling pointers. Instead, you're going to spend time looking at error messages from the compiler and figuring out what the compiler would let you do since it's not going to let you do what you wrote. Uh, no, I mean, and, this is one of the reasons we, that we wrote this book. One of the reasons that, that Rust is the kind of language that rewards taking the time to read a book about it. Yeah. Um, because if, if, you, if you tackle this language the same way you would tackle any other language, then you just assume like, oh, it's just programming, right? It's just like any other language. I can learn it the same way that I learned the last three programming languages I learned. Um, you're going to be disappointed, right? Or you're going yeah. to be stunned, maybe, and shocked. But uh, but it's it's actually it's you know once once you have the right ideas in your head uh, it snaps and and it, it just it, beca- it makes sense right yeah I, I think it feels it feels really good once once you've got it I um, for for Oscon this year I gave a presentation and I wrote a, a networked game in Rust and uh, it, it just just working through that game and knowing what it, this would be like in C and C++, I just felt like I had superpowers because like basically I'd argue with the compiler, the compiler would, would sort of push back at me. And then by the time I was done, it was done. Yeah. You know, we didn't have to go back and, and haggle over it for months afterwards, right? Or hours afterwards. When it was done, it was done. Yeah. Um, and it was I had the same amazing experience. Again and again, while I was writing the book, I would tackle this project, you know, get it through the, the, the phase of haggling with the compiler for what the type should be. Uh, and then it's, Flawless in a beautiful way, uh, and being able to do that with with code that actually also runs very fast is is yeah. a stunning experience. Before we get more into kind of Rust nitty gritty, let me ask you both if you can talk about your personal history or involvement with the development of the language. Um, were either of you there when Rust was first being conceptualized or, or close to that time? Uh, well, so I was. This is Jim. I was at Red Hat with Graydon Hoare. Uh, who is the original designer of Rust. Um, and so, so he and I were friends. And so he he actually showed me a very early draft of the language. Um, Graydon's thing is that he just loves doing research. He loves reading the literature. He loves um, learning about, you know, ideas that uh, that were proven in the research. That, you know, the research, they, they tried it out and looked at all the angles and seemed to work really well, but that never got taken up yeah. by industry. And it turns out that there's that there's a, a lot of these ideas, and so his idea, he's he like he seems to like to make up stories about the origin and the name of the language. He tells everybody a different thing. That's um, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he says Rust. Oh, yeah, it's like the fungus. What he told me way back when um, was that he wanted to call it Rust because the idea was to have no new ideas, was yeah. to just take all the old stuff that had been proven and that had passed, uh, you know the the tests and and just actually apply those in a practical language and yeah and, and Graydon was just a, 
a stickler for reliability, software that wasn't trustworthy, just it bothered him deeply. Um, and so that was what he was really going after was reliability. Um, and so, so I got to look it over and, and, and offer some comments. And the interesting, the interesting thing is that uh, the language, uh, Graydon uh, stopped working on, on Rust after a while, um, but the team that he had brought in and, and helped put together at Mozilla uh, carried it on. And after, after, after that, um, uh, Nico Matsakis and Aaron Turin uh, had a really big influence on the language, and it changed uh, a lot under their influence. Um, and uh, like I think that was the area, the the era when um, the garbage collector uh, stopped being a part of a key part of the language. Originally, Rust did have a garbage collector, but uh, Nico and Aaron realized that the type systems, the type system, could be made to actually uh, handle the the whole story. Uh, and, and so that that that's a, and I think that that's really where Rust became the language that it is now. Um, but there, there's all there's all kinds of cool blog posts from like these academics like Bob Harper and and people like that um, who have been you know promoting these ideas a lot of ideas for just like literally for decades right and now they're all starting to come in like like Swift has enumerated as uh, algebraic data types Rust has algebraic data types Rust and 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 sort of this new modern crop of languages are really bringing a lot of old ideas. Uh, into the mainstream and applying them in a really practical way. Jason, when did you come to the language? So I, shortly after that, I was working at Mozilla when uh, early versions of the compiler were, compiler were getting just getting started. Uh, so I got to got to kick the tires of the super early versions of the language. Uh, it's changed a ton since then. So I kind of got out of it for years and then got back into it. And Graydon's influence is obvious. He's a, just a connoisseur of old programming languages and ideas and the like. Programming ideas in the pure form. Well, let's talk a little about where Rust is right now and what's new with Rust. There was a release of Rust 1.20 back in August. What's new there? Uh, well, we, should, we shouldn't talk about 120. We should broaden because there's all kinds of stuff happening in Rust right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hottest stuff that is going on is not stuff inside the language itself, but inside the ecosystem. Okay. Well, you got to talk about futures and you got to talk about like asynchronous IO. Um, th- there's uh, like the, the rest of the programming world went through a transition these last five years or so towards um, using asynchronous IO. I think the, the, the node was the first like really big splash where suddenly people realized that you could handle just hundreds of connections on relatively weak hardware if you uh, wrote your code in an asynchronous style. So that was Node originally used. super annoying to actually do in practice, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so so, so the JavaScript world introduced promises. Go ahead. Uh, well, right, and, and async await, right, which are, these are yeah. language features that just help you write code that works asynchronously without having to suffer through callback hell and all, just all the pain of, of writing code that looks asynchronous. What C Sharp does, it's what JavaScript is doing. Well, that's that's coming to Rust. Um, but the really cool thing was uh, the, the, the there's, this, uh, eco, there's this sort of set of conventions, I guess, called uh, Tokyo. Uh, Tokyo is a way of plugging together the parts that you need to write a server um, such that, you know, it, so you get like a Lego kit 
of all the interesting pieces that you need to write a server. Like, okay, this I need to make a connection. Okay, that's one piece. But it needs to time out. If it doesn't come up, okay, that's another piece. And then it's a stream of lines. You break it down into lines. And okay, that's another piece, right? So you basically take these prefab parts and you plug them together. And what's really cool about Tokyo is that the compiler can see everything that you're plugging together. It knows exactly how things go. And so it can optimize them all together. Uh, so they, um, as sort of the, the test case, they implemented a uh, HTTP server in Tokyo. And um, even though it was written in this very high-level, modular, sort of, you know, almost academic style, uh, by the time you compiled it, it performed really well. In fact, not only did it outperform the HTTP server that's part of the Go standard library, the Go languages standard library. But also, if you're in Go and you need like a really fast HTTP server, there's this other HTTP server you're supposed to use. Tokyo, the Tokyo-based um, HTTP server outperformed that one as well. So that is this high-level, beautiful, modular Rust code was outperforming the uh, optimized Go HTTP server. Um, and so that's that's a really impressive uh, test case. And so there's been a lot more development around uh, Tokyo and sort of fleshing out that ecosystem and adding more uh, Lego parts that you can use. Uh, and it's growing really nicely. And that naturally hooks up with the asynchronous stuff and, and async await is going to make Tokyo uh, a much more, even more civilized place to live. What's your sense of how widespread the usage of Rust is now? Well, it's still early days. Um, it's being used in production by companies with real problems, um, uh, you can get hired to write Rust code. But I don't. Uh, and and there are new there are new open source software packages being released constantly to the to the point you can't keep track of them. But yeah, I, th- I think I think it's I think it's got a, it's got a way to go. I think that you know certainly to to replace C plus as the language of choice <laughs> for new for new high performance applications. It's it's got it's got an adoption rate that is ramping up nicely, and it'll take years to get there. Yeah, I, I think I think the, the the great thing about Rust is that it really can do things that you wouldn't dare do in C plus um, plus, especially with with concurrency, right? Uh, with Rust, when you write um, multi threaded code, the language itself uh, catches data races at compile time. So by the time your program compiles, it is free of data races. And that just changes the whole game around currency. It's something that is uh, much more practical to use in a lot of different contexts. And so companies are, are, are putting this to work and, and getting, uh, getting advantages uh, out of it that, uh, that they just can't do with other languages. Like uh, one, one of the companies that's using Rust is uh, Dropbox. Oh. Dropbox, you know, they, they, they're providing storage for everybody, right? And uh, Dropbox has these boxes whose job it is to just store as much data as possible in as little volume as possible, right? And uh, they had uh, one component of these boxes written in Go, uh, but uh, they felt like they could reduce the memory consumption substantially. And so they rewrote that component in Rust and the thing is, Rust doesn't, like like we've said, Rust doesn't have a garbage collector. In Rust, when you allocate memory, you know what it looks like, and that memory gets freed when you say it should be freed. They So they rewrote this component in Rust, and they, they drastically reduced their memory consumption. And so they were able to actually uh, get a lot more out of, out of their boxes. Um, and so that's a great example of sort of a resource-constrained uh, situation where Rust's advantages really give you an advantage that, that 
other languages can't match. Yeah, I mean, it also it makes it makes it sound a little bit like Rust is like enemy to the death with the Go programming language, but it, it really isn't like that at all. It's, like it's more like people are so desperate to have a safe language that can do what C++ does that they're using Go in use cases that are kind of outside of the language's sweet spot. Uh, and I think Rust is in a great a great place to, to occupy that niche. Can you talk a little bit more about Rust's support for multi-threaded programming? I was thinking about what, what Jim just said about how about how your program is free of data races by the time it compiles. It just sounds like snake oil, right? It just sounds like somebody made that up. And it really is true. And it's hard for me to even explain like how that works uh, without getting into details of the, the Rust type system. It's, it's the kind of thing where we, we very carefully plant the concepts in your mind over the course of several chapters before you get to the concurrency chapter of our book. <laughs> uh, but but I, I mean I will say this like when you've written a, um, a multi-threaded program in Rust and you need to tweak it to go faster or get more parallelism out of it, that experimentation is a lot easier to do when you're yeah. not fighting crashes every step of the way. And one thing which we should make clear, right? Rust doesn't prevent races per se, right? That is, if you if you take a if you take a lock and then you never release the lock, and then somebody else tries to take it, they'll hang, right? Or if you have a message queue and you decide you're going to wait for a message to arrive in that queue and nobody ever sends the message, then then you hang, right? right. There are all kinds of... And, and you know, if you have two threads that are running, it's, it's not clear which thread will do an operation first or which do an operation last, right? What Rust prevents is data races where you have unsynchronized access to memory, right? And so what that means is that all these, these races occur at points in the program where you're actually trying to get a mutex or where you're actually trying to wait for a message, right? Synchronization. Yeah, surface later as crashes or as... as right, yeah. right. They, they occur in when you're using constructs that are designed for the job. Whereas in C++, your threading errors occur everywhere at random. Anytime you touch memory, right, that's a potentially non-deterministic operation, right? Uh, and that's just not... It's not humane, right? Human beings are not designed to operate at that level of precision, right? And so Rust, the data races are gone, right? The language ensures that you don't have to deal with that. And then you're left with, you know, the actual design that you intended. And that's something that I have at least found a lot easier to work through. The book contains an example where it's a couple of lines of code to take a complex image processing task and just throw that out across eight threads yeah, uh, and and realize a big win and performance. Okay, so Jim and Jason, you've collaborated on this book, and you've known and worked with each other for quite a long time, right? And uh, so I wanted to ask if there's anything about Rust that you that you don't see eye to eye on, or that you have a, a difference of opinion. <laughs> uh, well, so so Jason and I had this had this bitter argument, um, and it was like right at the last moment where the deadline of the book was really looming, and I'm like, I don't I don't need this to this morning, uh, but basically. Uh, Jason was saying, you know, look, we need to be able to say, look, Rust is fast. That's the most important thing to say about Rust is that it's fast. And I said, that doesn't make any sense, right? Because a language is not fast. You can write slow code in any language, right? And but so, the, okay, so the, but the thing is that if you if you can't say that Rust is fast, it's kind of what is the point then, right? Because it, it is a language that is for high performance applications. Yeah, yeah, but like like th there's this whole history of people saying, "Is this language fast?" Right? And and like they they, <laughs> they haven't tried to optimize their algorithms. 
They haven't like characterized the size, the data that they're working with. They, they, it's just like, it's the dumb question, right? And so like what you can say is you can say, look, Rust gives you the control that you need so that if you are, you know, want to take control, if you want to make it fast, you have the control you need to accomplish that. But whether it's fast is, is up to you. Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, for our, for the listeners who wanted to sit through all that, I would say you're right. <laughs> um, but if people just need to know, is the language fast or not, I would have to say, yes, it is fast. The, the wound is still fresh. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just not precise. It's not a precise way of phrasing it. <laughs> okay. On that note, <laughs> Jim and Jason, if, uh, if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where should they look? They should, uh, they should. First of all, they should buy our book, Programming Rust, yes. and uh, look on the back cover uh, for uh, our smiling faces. Or uh, I, I guess uh, web websites, Twitter, anything like that. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as Jay Orndorf. I had to give up Twitter, but I'm I'm Jim Blandy at GitHub. And Jim had to give up Twitter to get the book done. And I'm you know at Mos- I'm on IRC at Mozilla, and I'm Jim B. Jim Blandy and Jason Orndorf, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Once again, Jim Blandy and Jason Orndorf's new book, Programming Rust, is now available on Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com to access it, and the print version will be available just a few weeks from now in October. You can also see Jim Blandy's presentation from the 2017 OzCon conference titled Network Gaming in Rust on Safari, as well as his video, The Rust Programming Language, Fast, Safe, and Beautiful. And if you like this podcast, we invite you to subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.